This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like to encourage you to please open it to the book of Genesis chapter 20 this morning. Genesis chapter 20. As you're turning there, um, I wanted to give you an update on... Emma, my daughter, but also wanted to ask you to pray for a very specific request. Emma is still doing well. We are very grateful. Therapies are going well. We're hearing, still hearing air in the lower lobes of her lungs. The prayer request that I would leave, ask you to pray for and leave with you this morning is in regards to the funding that she receives for nursing care. One of the praises in all this is that as Emma's breathing has improved, we've been able to reduce the number of hours she is on a ventilator at night. At the beginning of this, she would be on a ventilator 12 hours in the night, and we've got it down to normally now somewhere between six to eight hours, which is a real praise. She's breathing on her own, and the time on the ventilator gives her an opportunity to rest and clear her lungs of CO2. The issue, however, is that because Emma does receive 10 care, and the 10 care she receives pays for the nursing, the funding she receives for nursing care is based on the number of hours she's on the ventilator. So the state monitors that. We received notice from our caseworker that the committee that oversees that will be reviewing Emma's case. And she has prepared us that normally when they see a reduction in hours on the ventilator, they will cut funding. That's the policy. Um, what that means is we would lose a lot of nursing hours which would make our life a little, well, a lot more challenging. Uh, we've been told we can appeal, and we are planning to do that, but I'm praying and asking you to join me and my family in praying that we won't even have to do that, that the committee will look at other factors just than the ventilator numbers and see that Emma's case is very complex and that the nursing hours are very needed. So we'll hear probably within the next two weeks but be praying that God would just intervene and work there, please. We continue in the life of Abraham. And I want to apologize at the very beginning for those of you like me that grew up in the 80s, that when you see the title of this, you start thinking of the group Chicago, and it's a hard habit to break. I apologize. But this fits perfectly in with what we're going to dive into the text this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 and then verses 11 through 13. And from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech by, in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. She is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife 
for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now, Abimelech does what God tells him, and he returns, and he confronts Abraham, which we pick up on in verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, He is my brother. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. If this text sounds familiar, that means you've been keeping up with this study of Abraham. What happened in chapter 20 is really a repeat of something that occurred earlier in Abraham's life. It's recorded in chapter 12. When Abraham and Sarah had made their way into Egypt, Abraham was afraid. He was afraid that because Sarah was so beautiful, Pharaoh would take Sarah and kill Abraham. So Abraham devised a plot. He said, tell Pharaoh you're my sister. And that's exactly what Abraham did. And God intervened with Pharaoh also to prevent Pharaoh from touching her in any way. Well, apparently this had become the common practice of Abraham. In fact, we see in verse 13 that this had become his common, uh, common M.O. as he went from place to place. Because notice in verse 13, he says to Abimelech as he justifies his actions that he explained to Sarah, you must do this at every place we come to. So Abraham had developed this pattern of living this lie that Abraham was his sister whenever he came to a different place. He did so out of fear. He did so to save his own neck. Now, it's easy for us to ask, why didn't Abraham just stop after chapter 12? I mean, God sent plagues upon Pharaoh. God intervened to save Abraham's neck. At that point, you'd think, my goodness, stop the lying. Stop this charade. Well, the truth is, Abraham didn't stop because of the same reasons we don't stop our habits. You see, humanity hasn't changed. Just as Abraham continued in habitual sin, so we also continue with habits that are displeasing unto the Lord. And we do it for the same reasons. These habits are hard to break because often we think that the outcome will be different. We fool ourselves into thinking, well, this time it'll work out differently. We're like two hunters that had gone up into Canada hunting moose. And they were very successful hunters. In fact, they were able to kill one of the largest moose that they had ever come across, standing over seven feet tall and weighing almost 1,500 pounds. It was so big, they couldn't get it out of the wilderness. No problem. They were near a lake, so they developed a plan. We would call in, they said, a small plane to come land. We'll get the moose carcass strapped to the plane, take off, no problems. They implement their plan. The plane lands and the pilot looks and he says, guys, I don't think this is going to work. That's a heavy moose. You put that on the plane, we're not going to be able to take off. The guy says, it's okay. We've done this before. Oh, okay. So with hesitation, they begin working. Strapped the moose to the pontoons, start to get on the plane. The pilot says, look at how much it's sinking into the water. We can't do this. Listen, Mr. Pilot, we've done this before. It'll be okay. All right. 
Pilate takes off and sure enough, it's too heavy. They take off and start scraping the tops of the trees so that the plane has to do an emergency landing. When they land, they begin talking to one another. And one pilot looks to the other and says, are you guys okay? How'd we do? And one hunter said to the other then, it's okay. We got 50 feet further than we did last year. It'll be different this time. That's the lie we tell ourselves. So we begin to deceive ourselves. The outcome will be different even though I do the same thing. The second thing we do is we justify our habits. The interesting thing is that all of us engage in self-justification. It's not really that bad. And we usually do this by comparing it to something far worse. Okay, I may have my issues, but I'm not an axe murderer, okay? It's not that bad. And often today we begin justifying it in other ways. Well, it's just who I am. You ever heard that? Anger. Yeah, I've got a temper, but that's just me. Yeah, I worry, but that's just who I am. Notice Abraham, he had a justification. He says, yeah, verse 12, she is technically my sister, I mean, we've got the same father, but we've got different mothers. Now, I know that brings up a whole host of ethical questions, but remember, this is a very different time and a very different place. So Abraham begins hedging his bet. It's okay, all right, because it's really not that much of a lie. That's what he's saying. Justification. We can justify anything in our hearts and minds. So this morning, we want to take a look at breaking these habits, getting beyond the lie that the outcome will be different, getting beyond the justification. Now, when I talk about a habit, what I mean is this. A habit is a routine or behavior that is performed regularly, even automatically. It's been estimated that over 40% of what we do each day is done on habit. Now, neurologists believe that this happens so that we can conserve mental energy, that the more acts we can do without thought, the more we're able to conserve energy for other places. Now, habits can be good. They can be bad. They can even be annoying. What differentiates a good habit and a bad habit? Well, many times that may be indeed be in the eye of the beholder, but a bad habit is not necessarily a sinful habit. Chewing your fingernails may be a bad habit, but I don't know that it crosses over into sin unless it annoys your wife. Sinful habits are those sins that we gravitate to without thought. Outburst of anger. Worry. Gossip, pornography, things that we go to almost as habit without realizing the consequences we're bringing upon ourselves. Habits are formed by repetition. Therefore, habits are not easily broken. Because they become part of the warp and woof of our lives. And often, the more a habit connects with, with us on a chemical, physical, and, and, and a, a very tactile level, the more difficult it is to break. In fact, this is where spiritual warfare comes into play often. Often we think of this battle in the spiritual realm as just being something out there on a cosmic level, which no doubt happens. But many times, spiritual warfare is in our own hearts where we encounter the struggle between the fact that we are new creations in Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. 
We have a new heart. We are born again. But that born again heart is still encased in a physical body that is tainted by sin and has developed patterns of acting. So that's where the struggle comes in. We have this new spirit in an old body that is influenced by patterns of sin. Hence the conflict. That's why Paul said in Romans 7, the very thing I want to do, I often don't do. And the things I know I shouldn't do, I end up doing. That's why Paul looks forward to the day when we receive resurrected bodies. Because then our spirits and our bodies will both be new. And we'll be totally free from the presence of sin. Sinful habits are hard to break for several reasons. One is because they satisfy for the moment. That's why we develop habits. They bring a moment of satisfaction. Let's be honest about that. If every habit we started to develop, if every sinful habit had immediate bad consequences, we'd stop doing them. In fact, the Scripture tells us when it describes Moses of why Moses chose to identify with the children of Israel rather than Pharaoh's daughter. It says he he was choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Fleeting pleasures. These sinful habits begin to satisfy us for just a moment. And often that satisfaction comes because they deliver what we want for the moment. I mentioned this last week. We begin to learn at an early age how to manipulate those around us. That's human nature. Pitch a temper tantrum, you get what you want. As a child, we call it a temper tantrum. As an adult, we say they just got a horrible temper. But it's the same principle. Because we develop in our thinking the way to get what I want is simply to pitch a fit. You all are familiar with pitching a fit, aren't you? Once again, it is learned behavior. In fact, it's this learned behavior that in the book entitled Hooked, How to Build a Habit-Forming Product, Nair El discusses how apps on our phones are designed. They are designed to create habits. He says every habit, every app on our phones create a persistent routine, a behavioral loop. That's fancy terminology for habits. They are trigger a need, boredom, loneliness, frustration, confusion, indecisiveness, and to create a sense of satisfaction that comes from opening that app. Bored for a moment? Open the app and find that boredom, your mind redirected. Everything is done to create a habit because they deliver what we want for the moment. Then the habits are also formed because they are easy for the moment. You ever wonder why bad habits are so easy to form and good ones so difficult? It is easy to eat in an unhealthy way. Man, I can pop open a package of Pop-Tarts or Swiss cake rolls in a heartbeat. Yes. But man, to... To take time, and I'm so, my kids eat healthy, I'm, I'm put to shame by them. They weigh out and measure food and get what they ought to, and I'm thinking, that's just too much trouble. But dad, it's healthy. Sinful habits are easy. And because they get ingrained in our thinking and in our body, they are hard to break. So how do we do that? How are habits broken? Well, one, we've got to start with the truth. In other words, we have to quit lying to ourselves. Isn't it amazing how we abhor lying in others, but often we'll tolerate it in our own lives? It's not really that bad. It'll be okay. This will be my last Swiss cake roll. 
We have to start with the truth. And that may require, first of all, intervention. Confrontation. That's what Abimelech does with Abraham in verse 9. And even though I didn't read it, I direct your attention to it now. Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? That's confrontation. What are you doing? It comes that moment of looking at the hard truth. It is Jesus at the woman with the woman at the well saying, you know, bring me your husband. And he knew. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, that's right. You've been married five times and you're living with someone right now. We've got to face the truth. Whether that be intervention from, our, from friends and community. or Sometimes it's that intervention in ourselves because of pain. The hard truth is, is that often we will not begin to break these sinful habits until we hurt enough. We know we've got to. And that's hard. And especially for those uh, around us that love us, when they see what's happening, not to step in and fix the problem, but to let us at times experience the full consequence of our actions. That's the prodigal son, isn't it? When he's gone through all the money and he's done everything he wanted, he comes to himself and where is he? In a pig pen at rock bottom. This is the hard providence of God that at times it's our pain that begins to break these sinful habits. So once we become aware of these habits, the intervention has taken place, the pain is there, and we say we've got to stop, how are godly habits formed? Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18 on the screen. We all, with unveiled face, now it's a way of saying there's no barrier between us and God now. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now there's a lot in this verse. Now notice the underlying part. Beholding the glory of the Lord. That word beholding means a continual gazing upon. Now, two things that, that we have to wrestle with in this. First of all, what is the glory of the Lord we're beholding and how do we behold it? Now, I think the glory of the Lord encompasses many things. One, it can speak of His luminous presence. The glory of the Lord can speak of being in the presence of God where you know you're in the presence of God. Something akin to the Shekinah glory found in 2 Kings 8. But the glory of God is also connected with His character. Upon the mountain in Exodus when God, where Moses said, show me your glory. And God says, I'll make my compassion and my judgment pass in front of you. It's interesting also that when the book of Romans describes the cross, it speaks of the cross as revealing the mercy of God and the justice of God. The very same things God revealed on the mountain to Moses. So I think the glory of God is more than just the luminosity of His being. It refers to His character, His goodness, His mercy, His justice. How do we see those things then? How do we behold them? I think by reflecting upon the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ. By thinking of the cross and the resurrection, letting those get in our mind, we thus behold the glory of God. And that's where the our being transformed is connected to beholding the glory we are transformed as we reflect upon the character of God. And that from one degree of glory to another means that in our lives we're being changed to be like God. To be gracious, merciful, compassionate. The list that Michael read earlier in Colossians. 
reflects God's character. And notice it's from one degree of glory to another. It's step by step. Incremental. That's why this morning I want to give you the B, C, D, and E of change. B, D, C, and E because I couldn't think of an A. It begins with a decision. All right. Notice where Michael read, and I'll just point this out. The things highlighted, put to death, put them away. That speaks of a, mo- a decision in time, a moment where you decide, I've got to change. I've got to put these things off. The language that is used there of put to death or put them away is the idea of taking off a cloak, taking off a coat. There's got to be a decision where we say, I'm not going to waver. I'm going to make this decision. Now, it doesn't mean there won't be setbacks. But if you start into something with, well, I'm not sure, I'm just going to try, you're setting yourself up for failure. Start with the decision. And you may have to come back and make that decision three, five, six, eight, however many times. That's okay. But there has to be a moment where you say, this has got to stop. That's where the C comes in. The C is community. One of the reasons that we often fail in putting off sin and sinful habits is we try to do it alone. That sets us up for failure. We need to be with those who are like-minded to encourage us. I've never been a a long-distance runner. I'm amazed at those who do. There was a time when my, my wife ran half marathons and marathons. And one of the things we discovered is that in this area, as well as many areas, there are running clubs where people get together and actually run long distances in groups together and said that the benefit of running clubs is that it boosts motivation, provides inspiration, it gives structured training and encouragement in community. Church, that's nothing new. In the book of Hebrews, it says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Encourage one another. Help one another. Be that positive influence, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. In other words, how can we encourage one another if we don't meet together? That's why I am telling you one of Satan's greatest schemes is to separate the believer from the church. To convince you, you don't need the body of Christ. Or if you come, don't get that involved. Yeah, I recognize any community of faith has its struggles. But you know what? I, can, I promise you this. You will fare better in your walk with the Lord when you are involved with a community of faith than you will going it alone. We need one another. Community is crucial. Then the D, dwell on your new identity. Get in your thinking who you are in Christ. In his book, Atomic Habits, James Clear writes, Your behaviors are usually a reflection of your identity. In other words, research has shown that a person will act in a particular way when they identify themselves in that way. How you identify yourself determines often in how you act. You will align with that belief and what you say about yourself. An example that James Clear gives in his book is this. He says when a person is trying to quit smoking and someone offers them a cigarette, cigarette, they may say, well, no, I'm trying to quit smoking. He says, don't do that. When they offer you a cigarette, say, I'm a non-smoker. He says there's a huge difference in that. 
You're identifying yourself in a way. Church, we need to come back to who we are in Christ. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Why? The whole chapter previous to verse 11 is saying how you are in Him. What's your identity? You are a follower of Jesus Christ. And to get that in our thinking, we are His adopted. And finally, engage in the process. It is a process. There are times where God works instantaneously to free people from sinful behaviors. I've experienced that. Many of you have also. There are other times where God leaves us to the process. That's His prerogative as God. To work for His glory in what way He seems fit. But notice that language, from one degree of glory to another. That means don't become discouraged at those moments where you feel like nothing is happening. I've been told that bamboo, once planted, is rarely seen above ground for the first five years. But once it pierces the soil, within, nine, within six weeks, it will grow as tall as 90 feet. Because in those five years where nothing appears to be happening, there's a network of roots and growth taking place underground that enables it at the right time to burst through and to grow exponentially. Sometimes that's how our spiritual growth is. So don't be discouraged if some days it's a step backwards. You battle with temper and you lose your temper. Don't stop the battle. Keep pressing on. I want to ask you, if you will, to bow your heads with me right now. Father, none of us can set in judgment upon Abraham because each of us have our own struggles. We have our own patterns of sin that we struggle with. So, Lord, this morning we're asking for your help. We ask you, O Lord, to direct our gaze towards your glory in the cross and the resurrection. And to develop those habits that will help us to grow in godliness. Grant this, Father, we pray that you may be glorified in your character seen in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.